Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical martial arts instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. The episode show notes are at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. My newsletter goes out every week with updates about the podcast, my works in progress, and all sorts of cool sword stuff. You can unsubscribe at any time and there's never any spam. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to thank the people who make it possible, my patrons on Patreon. It takes time and money to run a podcast, and without them, I'd have quit long ago. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy for behind the scenes content to suggest future guests and priority access to my inbox. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. I'd also like to thank Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that adorn the show originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. And finally, as a sword person, let me invite you to my online community, swordpeople.com, where you can interact with all sorts of people who are into historical martial arts in one way or another, without trolls, ads, algorithms, or Russian sex bots getting in the way. It's built on the Mighty Networks platform, which means we are paying for hosting and the use of their software, servers, and tech support, so we are the customers. We are not handing over our data to be sold to commercial interests, and so there is no incentive for algorithm-driven fear-mongering to maximize time on the platform. It's as pure as social media can be. There are four levels of membership. Free, this gives you access to the main discussion areas and events, etc. Or, at £5 a month, you can join Support Sword People, which gives you access to all of the above, plus the satisfaction of helping to support the platform, and access to live streams and my train-along sessions. Then there's the Solo Scholars at £20 a month, which gives you access to all of the above, plus all of my online courses that can be done alone, which are solo training, footwork, breathing, meditation, and recreating historical swordsmanship from historical sources. And finally, there is the Mastering the Art of Arms level at £40 a month, which gives you access to all of the above, plus all of my online courses, such as the Complete Longsword Course, Complete Rapier, Medieval Sword and Buckler, and How to Teach. There are no paid ads, no paid promotions, nothing like that, which means we are entirely dependent on the users of the platform to pay for it, so if you're thinking about joining, please do consider one of the paid options. So, if you'd like to join us and think you can behave yourself like a reasonable adult, because the code of conduct is absolute and enforced with an iron hand, which is why it's such a nice place to spend time, go to swordpeople.com and click Request to Join. It's fast, easy, and straightforward. You can get Sword People on your phone or other device by downloading the Mighty Networks app and signing in. Now, without further ado, on with the interview. I'm here today with Jana Hausen, who is a historical fencer, a PhD candidate, mother and spouse, as well as being a Lutheran pastor. And I guess the main question we're going to be looking at today is, how the hell do you fit it all in? So, (laughs) without further ado, Jana, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. That's very kind of you to say. Now, whereabouts in the world are you? I am in the suburbs of Chicago, Illinois, in the States. Uh, Bolingbrook, if you want to be specific. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm guessing that you, you, 
you fence with people like Carrie, who was on the show earlier? Yes, I do. Yep. We have a great group of fencers in the area, and I've been very lucky to um, be able to benefit from the wisdom and experience that's in this neck of the woods. Okay. Um, and is that how you got into historical martial arts? How did that all come about? Um, it came about through a college roommate and a separated shoulder, actually. Okay. So wow. my <laughs> so um, my college roommate uh, start uh, got me connected with the SCA, which is where I do my uh, historical martial arts through. Uh, but for a long time, I was not a fencer. I started out in archery and uh, scribal work, actually. And that okay. was a little bit of an intentional choice as my beloved spouse uh, went into rapier immediately. So we figured okay. balancing things out, not overlapping too much with our kiddos, he'd do this, I'd do the other. Oh, so you already had, you were already married with children when you started? Um, so when we first started in the SCA, already married, uh, the children were imminently pending, shall I say. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh. Yeah. So started out in this other neck of the woods, um, again, to help manage time so our uh, interests wouldn't overlap. He could do his thing, and then we'd trade off the kiddo, and I could do, go do my thing. Um, and that, and um, outside of the SCA, I've also practiced Eastern martial arts. I'm a Taekwondo black belt and okay. a karate brown belt at this point. Um, so are you still actively doing karate? I am. All right, so black belt coming up. Yes, I hope. We'll see. <laughs> so hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Taekwondo black belt, coming up with karate black. So so you must have started that in martial arts quite a while ago. Yes, I started uh, TKD in college. Okay. Practiced that for about a decade. And then when we moved to the Chicago area, uh, we had trouble finding a school that both aligned with our values in practicing martial arts and our budget at the time. Right. Okay. So what got you into martial arts in the first place? Um, a good friend who came home from university said, hey, I've been doing this new thing. You should try it. Um, and he taught us a couple basic kicks at the side of the pool at the pool party we were at. It's like, oh, this is cool. Um, there And there was a TKD club at the university I was attending at the time. So that's how I connected there. Okay, so you didn't like grow up punching and kicking stuff. It was sort of introduced to you quite late. No, I had a mother who was uh, far more concerned about the dignity of young women growing up. Ah, okay. So, so yeah, personally, I find a young woman who can break my nose with her foot anytime she feels like it to be extremely dignified. You would love my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, like, like okay, so, so basically you, you would sort of, steered away from the mm -hmm. punchy kicky stuff when you were younger because it's not not proper for young ladies yeah but came okay. into it as an adult that was my whole yeah. rebellion when i went off to university okay you can tell so what you know, i'm doing this all wrong because my my kids have had absolutely every opportunity to do as much martial arts as they like and they just could not be less interested um like my youngest did like a year of judo and that's about it so I've been doing this all wrong. What I should have been doing is saying, absolutely not. Girls aren't allowed to do swords. <laughs> Stay away from them. Put that down. No, not allowed. And then maybe when they were grown up, they'd have taken it up. It's the allure of the forbidden fruit, right? Yeah. Yeah, I got that one completely wrong. I was like, no, come and train. Come and practice. How it go? <laughs> and when they were very little, they were very happy to play with daddy with swords. That's fine. But yep. you know, now they're sort of 16 and 14, they have sadly no interest at all. Mm. 
Um, so anyway, okay, so, yeah, okay. training, training in karate, um, and had a grappling injury and separated my left shoulder. Uh, ah, which okay. Meant I couldn't do karate for about three months, but right. my right shoulder was perfectly good. And it's like, oh, fencers start out with one hand. I can go multitask. I'll do this for a little while until I can go back to training on the mats. Ah, okay. And, and how, did uh, that, how did that work? Did, it, did you get seduced to the sword after that? <laughs> I did very quickly. Um, <laughs> I'm a sucker for martial arts anyway, as you can tell. Um, yeah. So I started and went, okay, this is kind of fun. Okay, I like this. Okay, let me figure out. All right. And then we needed to hire a babysitter full time for Tuesday night practices. And it all went from there. Okay, so so you're training once a week and you and your husband get a babysitter in to, to cover you while you're out. We do. Okay, that's, that's, a, that's a sensible solution. Because I mean... Yeah. I, I'm guessing your club would be very happy for you to bring the kids along. But if you do, then you're not going to get any training done. Yes. Yeah, so our kids are now 13 and 6. So they're at the age ah. where it would be a little bit more viable to bring them along, particularly mm -hmm. the 13-year-old. He's great. Sure. Um, but up to this point, um, we did kids kind of the worst way possible for having hobbies because we got our first one to 7 and then ended up, oh, right. let's restart at an infant. <laughs> yeah so so you've forgotten how to change nappies by the time the second one came around All right. it did we, take we, a little bit of work yeah we, we timed ours a bit a bit more um easily so like our eldest was still in nappies when the youngest was born and yeah. and so we just had one very long nappy period but once you're once you're once you're sort of in the nappy zone yep it's actually no problem i mean you, you can you can travel you just can go around you can do stuff and and you're all geared up for it and you've got the bag and you've got all the stuff in it and it's like, no problem. But as soon as, as soon as you, I've noticed with lots of these parenting things is this thing which is absolutely critically and critical and essential and a major part of your life just suddenly just isn't. And you don't even notice that you're not doing it anymore. Yeah. It's like, I remember when we, I went downstairs um, and had a look in the bike shed and I saw our double push chair thing. And I realized, hang on, we haven't actually used that for like three months. <laughs> maybe we should sell it because the kids have just grown out of it and we hadn't even noticed that we weren't using it anymore yeah the first weekend sword fighting event we went to without the diaper bag that was a landmark <laughs> <laughs> i can imagine but actually the, the the nappies are in many ways more portable than the young child who is just out yes. of them yeah right because then every every uh, bathroom incident has to be dealt with immediately yes <laughs> right and when they say now, they, I mean, I remember, I, I'm, I'm sure my youngest will kill me if she finds out I say this online, but <laughs> she was about two and she'd just come out of nappies and we were doing some errands and she said she needed a wee and we were just like getting to the front of a queue in the pharmacy and I was like, okay, just hang on a minute. And while I was doing this, like, that was two minutes, I was there, you know, getting some medicine for something, I forget exactly what. And she kind of just looks at me and she's standing in a little puddle. <laughs> Yeah. So, so I, so I look at, I, I, I look at the chap across the counter and I say, look, I'm very sorry, but my daughter has just urinated on your floor. What would you like me to do about it? And get this, Finland is famous for bad customer service, but what this guy said, I mean, we never went to any other pharmacy ever again. He said, it's natural. Don't worry about it. We'll handle it. Oh, wonderful. I was like, wow. Okay. 
Yes. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I can imagine in a, in a you know in a fencing event, if your two year old or three year old is like, you know, Daddy, I need a wee. Yep. You just That's put it. The sword down and go. You ha- yeah, there is. <laughs> you have no time. <laughs> yep. Um, okay, so um, I'm curious. You, you've taken um, Taekwondo to quite a high level. Mm-hmm. What made you switch to karate, or did you just add karate to the mix? Uh, the switch came when we moved to the Chicagoland area, and we couldn't find a dojung that aligned with our budget and our martial arts values. Um, okay. Can so you speak we, a bit more about, I mean, I get the budget part. That's fairly straightforward. Yeah. What What is the values element? So an important part for me is training martial arts as an art. So um, looking at understanding the mechanics of what you're doing, not just being able to go out and, you know, beat something to smithereens. Um, one of the, one of the shadow uh, sides of Taekwondo becoming an Olympic sport is a lot of dojungs became highly competitive and highly focused mm-hmm. on competitive sparring. And I'm somebody who's more interested in the whole experience, the forms, the techniques, the roundedness of it. Sure. So yeah. finding something that lined up there. Um, I wanted to find a place that um, acknowledged the previous training I had and didn't just okay. go, oh, well, you have to restart and pay for all these belt ranks again. And oh, God, yes, the belt factory. Ah, yeah. uh, yes, yep. So um, I have a friend who calls them Mick Dojos. Yep, absolutely. Yep. And, and and they're not wrong to do so. It's, I mean, there's, there's a, if you're coming into an entirely new art, it makes mm-hmm. sense that you, you show up as a white belt yep. and whatever, and when they notice that you know what you're doing and you discuss you know, your previous background, they might say, well, actually, okay, but you should be training over there with the blue belts. Yep. Right. And, and some sort of accommodation is made. Um, so you want to approach it with that humility mm-hmm. of, okay, this is not my, this is not exactly what I was doing before. I am not part of the system. So I start at the bottom, but yep. at the same time, a well-run space will, will recognize previous experience and treat you accordingly. Cause the mm-hmm. point for them should not be getting those, um, examination fees for every belt. Yeah. Yeah. So um, when I found that there wasn't a Jojung nearby that was a good match, I started exploring other arts because I was perfectly willing to go back, start at the beginning and work through Mm -hmm. and stumbled into this wonderful program run by our local park district um, with an instructor who had that rounded approach who, when I walked in and I bowed my first time in, he's like, okay, you know what you're doing. Come tell me what you've got as a background. Um, and okay. I did start as a white belt, but he also honored that previous training. Um, so it's like, here on this thing, go train over here. And um, and the belt fees were very reasonable. So it mm. never felt like he was churning for that. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, I mean, I've run gradings because my students in Finland wanted a grading system and the students in Singapore wanted it even more. So we developed this grading system. And the way I always ran the grade exams was there'll be a full day's seminar mm-hmm. where people will show up at their various levels and they would practice the stuff they were supposed to know and they would get taught the next stuff, whatever that was. And if their training level meant that they were eligible for an exam, then we would examine them mm-hmm. and, you know, if necessary, teach them the thing that was missing um, or just pass them or what have you. And the point is, they're paying for a seminar and they get a seminar that's useful to them, whether they grade or not. Yep. Right. 
Um, and there was no actual additional fee for me checking this element and that element. And yes, okay, you're, you're through to the next level. Yeah. Um, cause yeah, I've, I've, I've always been right. Really, really suspicious of these. Like, it's a hundred dollars for your orange belt exam sort of thing. And I found okay. that a lot of the Taekwondo dojongs tied it to time rather than experience. So, oh, it's two months ah. here pay for this next thing. Oh, it's another two months here, pay for this next thing. Right. Um, and my current instructor, Master Car, I love what he says. He, he says, I don't care how long you're sitting there with a white belt. You're going to be sitting there with a white belt until you know your stuff and we've figured it out. And yep. that's not, and the elevation isn't what it's about. It's about actually having the skill. So. Yep. Okay. So for people who aren't familiar, what is the process of getting a Taekwondo black belt? Again, very school by school, but typically um, you go through, you train for a certain period of time and you're looking for both basic techniques. Uh, oftentimes in Taekwondo, there's a series of step sparrings, which are fighting patterns that they'll teach you. Um, mm -hmm. And then a formal kata or form, which is a series of moves. Um, a lot of times in Taekwondo, you need to demonstrate free sparring experience as well, where you actually go and kick and punch other people. Um, yeah. and then did you board do that? I did. Okay. Um, and then board breaking as well tends to be like the big showcase thing. Yeah. 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 I've, I've seen a lot of Taekwondo board breaking stuff. It's great fun to watch. It is. So, <laughs> so, so you've done the board breaking stuff. I have. Okay. What's, what's the, how do you do it without breaking your foot? <laughs> uh, good technique. Like everything else. How do you do sure. this without breaking yourself? Good technique. Um, I have to. I happen to be gifted with particularly high arches, which okay. um, means I am ridiculously good at doing top of the foot breaks. Um, okay. Which is a relatively rare skill because a lot of times you want to break with something solid like your heel or the ridge of your yeah. foot. Yeah. Um, but I've got this great ridge right there that I can go through on the top of the foot, and it's very very showy at tournaments. I got first places in so many tournaments because of this weird physical gift I have. So so you're you're breaking a pine board. I'm assuming yep. it's pine. It is pine. Um, with what is, if it was your hand, it would be like the back of your hand. Yeah, right there. That yeah. first bone. Yeah, that first knuckle. That's, yeah, that's hurting my feet just thinking about it. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would do it. I would do it in sabatons. No problem. Um, okay, so do you not have to do any sort of hardening techniques, like like building up the like the toughness of the foot? Not so much. With the pine boards, break a lot more easily than you think they might. Um, okay, you're not supposed to tell us. <laughs> Here I am giving all these secrets away. Edit this section out. <laughs> um, so again, breaking is far more about mindset than it ever is about physical hardening. Sure. Yeah. So. Okay. And I, I'm guessing that quite a lot of the people listening who do like sparring in fencing would be mm -hmm. curious to hear about how the sparring is set up in Taekwondo. Okay. So I did Olympic style sparring. There's different styles. Um, mm -hmm. And in that one, it's a free, it's a continuous free sparring. You have typically three corner judges who are watching for points. Uh, you have set sc scoring areas either on the torso or on the head, not the face. Yep. Um, and you need to have a body jolting blow. So you need to hit hard enough that there's a movement of the spine is typically what they're evaluating. Um, okay. 
Since I've done that, they've started doing these sensor systems within the chest protectors, and I was never advanced enough, or it's been long enough, I've never had the chance to work with those. But when I was actively sparring, that was how it was judged. Okay, so you're relying on the ability of your judges to spot that you hit the person hard enough. Yes. Okay. Uh, and how many, How? what is the sort of final score usually? What sort of? Are you, are you doing it to time or are you doing it to a certain number of points? You're generally doing it to time. There's usually two rounds, often 60 seconds. Um, okay. At the end of two 60-second rounds, depending on the level of sparrers, of course, you'll see anything from like two points to five to seven points. Um, okay. So you're looking in that range. All right. Huh. So do you find that that was a helpful sort of precursor to your fencing training? Yes and no. So it was okay. very helpful in that um, I had fought before, so I wasn't coming into fencing sparring going, ah, somebody's hitting me. Yeah. Um, and the blows you take in Taekwondo are at a much higher calibration than the blows you're supposed to take in SCA sparring. Sure. Um, so honestly, making the transition into rapier fighting, it's like, oh, this isn't even full fighting. We're just playing tag with swords. Because we're looking for that <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, so that helped a lot with the weasel brain. Um, on the flip side, I learned that the bad habits I had from Taekwondo unfortunately followed me into uh, rapier fencing. Like what? Strange. Oh. <laughs> Do I have to give away all my secrets? Um, no, but it's probably... It's, I'm sure listeners will be interested to know what what kind of weaknesses you're talking about? Because I guess most of the people listening have never actually had a round kick to the ribs before. Fair enough. Um, so for me, my biggest enemy is headspace. Being able to get into okay. that. Um, I'm here and I'm coming with intention to do a person harm within a controlled environment. So I'm not actually looking yeah. to harm my opponent, but that whole, all right, I'm dealing with the adrenaline dump and the... Um, Weasel brain kicking in. I am probably... Yeah, and also, they want to win and you're trying to take that away from them. So you are doing them some kind of harm if you do your job properly. Fair enough. Um, In terms of fight or flight, my weasel brain likes going to freeze. And that's really, Ah, really bad with Taekwondo and with fencing. You end up flat-footed and, hey, look, you're an easy target. It's, it's, It's the worst of all of the responses, really, usually. It really is. You're literally standing still and getting hit. Yeah, which is like... Thing one that you don't want to do, stand still and get hit. Yeah. So. Okay. Um, so presumably if you were trained properly in Taekwondo, you were given solutions to these issues. I was. So I had um, an instructor who was a former national sparring champ, uh, but he did point sparring. So that's the other system you do in Taekwondo where you go until mm-hmm. one person scores and then reset, which should be familiar to a number of the uh, sword fighters listening. Um, so he really worked with me, um, to come up with things that I could do to help combat that, uh, reaction. Uh, one of my favorites was sort of keeping my weasel brain busy with something else. So my body could do what it needed to do. Um, so one of the tricks he taught me was to count my breaths when I spar. So as I'm out there on the mat, moving around, counting in one, out one. So my brain is churning on that rather than going, ah, somebody's trying to kick me in the head. Yeah. Yeah, I actually often sing a little song to myself 
Oh, really? Yeah, because again, it, it occupies the bit of the brain. And also, when you get really close to someone and they hear that you're singing a little song, they get really freaked out, which is very good. <laughs> yep. Um, okay, so the is, is the karate you're doing, does that have a similar sort of competitive component or is it more of the traditional stuff? More of the traditional stuff, particularly in this school. My current instructor um, doesn't love the commercialization and the competitive nature of tournaments and such. Mm-hmm. So he'll support students who are interested, but he also doesn't encourage us to go out and do that, which is great because it's one less obligation on my rather busy plate right now. <laughs> yeah. But actually, let's, let's talk about some of your other obligations. So, um, right, you've just handed in your PhD dissertation. All right, I have. Now, firstly, congratulations. I hope it goes very well. Thank you. Um, and, you know, just getting that damn thing done and out and off your plate is, yes, um, I, I can sympathize. Um, so what is it about? It is about looking at how geeks make meaning within their fandoms. So how a Star Trek Oh my makes, God. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that is genius. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Please carry on. No, it's great. I love enthusiasm when I say that. Um, and how we might borrow some of that natural meaning making that's happening in fandom spaces and bring it back into Christian education. Because oh, okay. here's one of the things I may say to get myself in trouble with the bishops. But a lot of Christian education really stinks. And people are looking outside the church to figure out who am I? Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? These big meaning making questions. And people are using, less so with the horrendous nature of the creator, but um, used, used to use Harry Potter houses. So, oh, I'm a Ravenclaw. That says something about me, who I am, how I behave, how I respond to things. Or looking in Star Wars at the Jedi-Sith alignment. You know, how do yeah. I view the world? So people are doing these things. And this is the type of meaning making, ideally, we'd love to see in the church within the religious texts and it's it, it just does not seem happening. to be one of your does seem to be kind of like one of the points of having a religion it's just small detail there <laughs> so okay so what what fandoms did you look at so i had to the worst part of a dissertation for me is you have to narrow it in so specifically um so i looked the thing I had to do within my dissertation, because most church people go, fandom, what's that? Why do I want to think about yeah. it? Was I yeah. had to make the point that meaning making was happening in these fan spaces. So um, the pandemic influenced my research methodology a little bit because uh, it was not the best time to go out and do interviews or wander around comic cons. Sure. So I looked at digital artifacts with uh, that looked at the post-Disney acquisition Star Wars era okay, to see where people were making meaning within the uh, sequel trilogy or the latest live action shows. Or I even got to pull in like the last season of Clone Wars was in that era. Okay. All right. I should probably maybe just sidebar briefly and say my biggest claim to fame is that in 2006, when I was teaching a seminar in Singapore, I also went and taught a class at Lucasfilm Animation in Singapore, and I actually taught Longsword to the animators who created the Clone Wars. Oh, wow. That is a yeah. serious claim to so, fame. 
That is, I am that is, standing that is, in the presence of greatness <laughs> right here. <laughs> that, I mean, that, yeah, that, that's, that's that's definitely one for the series. Like, oh my god! All right, so little bit of a little bit of a Jedi geek myself. Yeah. Um, so, what kinds of meaning are fans generally um, sort of bringing to or getting out of Star Wars? So we're see we're seeing the type of me. I let me rephrase. I found evidence of the type of meaning making we're concerned with in the church, which is using the language of fandom to express understanding of the world, um, using that same framework to um, approach new challenges or hard situations in life. Um, okay. Could you give us an example? Sure. I wish I had my papers in front of me. <laughs> You know the point when you're so far deep in your dissertation, you have no idea what you've said anymore? Yeah. And also, I'm, I'm also totally familiar with the, when it goes off to the examiners or to publication or whatever, your yeah. brain just deletes the entire thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? So I, I perhaps should have, should have warned <laughs> you that I might ask this, this question, but, but if you could dig up an example, that'd be great. Sure. So, um, one of the really interesting things about looking at that era of Star Wars fandom is the idea mm -hmm. of canon, what is in and what is out for making uh -huh. meaning. Yeah. Um, so I really pulled on that to say, you know, one of the really interesting things about fandom is people can define canon a little bit for themselves. So we have these Star Wars fans who are completely excluding the sequel trilogies saying, that's not my Star Wars. And yep. then you have the relationship with authority because of, uh, Disney is saying, well, the only canon is the um, movies plus whatever Disney makes and excluding yep. the entire expanded universe. So what does it mean when you have somebody saying, well, the thing you're make, making meaning from, that's not real or that doesn't meet the muster for being official texts? So talking yeah. about – how we approach scripture in that same way, because we have this canon that's been set centuries ago. There's canon and there's the Apocrypha. Yeah. Yeah. But not only that, what do we do with modern day prophets and people who are bringing new meaning and modern meaning? Jesus didn't have a whole lot to say about how to ethically use cell phones or interact in digital environments. So how do, how do we take seriously the work that's being, that's being done there? and bring in these new sources of authority. So relationship to authority is a huge component of this. Ownership of the texts and ability to play with the texts was a huge thing. So fanfic. within fan, exactly. Yeah. Fanfic, cosplay, all of these things that we do that help us relate to these fandom texts, we're almost prohibited from doing within the religious environment. And part of my right. uh, dissertation is to say, you know, what if we loosen up the grip a little bit here? What if we let people write fanfic about what it might have been like? Um, I also got to make the argument that, like, Life of Brian is a great piece of fanfic. Yeah. Monty Python's it. So it's like, let's take this seriously. Blessed are the cheesemakers, indeed. <laughs> yeah, and he's not the Messiah. He's a very naughty boy. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, okay, so, so basically you're... Your conclusion from this is having looked at how fans in the Star Wars arena create meaning and interact with the canon. Mm -hmm. um, you think basically, basically, you think the church could learn something about yeah. 
how to run the church from how fandom operates? Well, at least Christian education. Okay, what do you mean by that? Uh, So at least how we teach people to make meaning from the faith. I don't know that we want to run our Sunday services like a fan convention, although there's some potential there too. But the scope of mine is looking at that educational component. So Okay, like what? So, um, So a big thing that, at least in the US, mainline Protestant churches are wrestling with is our coming of age education, often called confirmation. Um, has really been struggling. So we're dealing with sixth to eighth graders, so 11 to 14, give or take, in that range. And kids' brains are doing some really cool thing here. And this is is when they're really starting to ask questions and make their own meaning and move from their family being a site of authority to their friends and their peers and external sources. So uh, one of the great things that fandom does is give some um, agency to the fans and how they make meaning. So what if we bring that same sort of agency in the way we teach confirmation, rather than trying to indoctrinate with certain uh, right beliefs or dogma? What if we trust our kids a little bit more and encourage them to explore meaning making in their own ways within the Christian fandom? Okay. That's a very interesting idea. Of course, because I, I got sort of church stuff thrown at me for 10 years in boarding school and I hated every minute of it and it, mm-hmm. none of it stuck, frankly. <laughs> um, so it's interesting to me that you would come at it from, basically you're coming at it the same way that I come at teaching historical martial arts to students, which is it's not my job to tell people what to do. It's my job to figure out what they need to get where they want to go mm-hmm. and provide that, mm-hmm. yeah? So, like, if, if one particular student really wants to be good at tournament fencing and another particular student really wants to understand what Fiori means when he says this, that, or the other, mm-hmm. those it's, it's not my job to say, well, actually, you all have to do all the Fiori stuff and all the tournament stuff. It's my job to go, okay, right, so you're interested in this bit. So what's, what's stopping you getting where you want to go? Ah, okay. Um, you're having difficulty sort of perhaps figuring out the syntax in the Italian, right? Let's work on that. Or you're having difficulty when under a lot of pressure, you tend to step back and you need to be able to step to the side instead. So let's look at that. Yep. Right. It's And basically letting it come from the student rather than being imposed from outside. It's reimagining, reimagining the role of pastor as educator and resource rather than authority figure. How can I support the student right. in their understanding exactly. with where they want to go? And you know what? I formalized this sort of gradual shift in my approach. Because um, back in the early days, I was relatively authoritarian. So I was terrified if I didn't keep control of everyone that somebody would get killed. Mm-hmm. Right. And as I gradually learned to trust my students and learned how to teach better, it sort of evolved from being kind of a fairly classic sort of sensei-ish, you know, mm-hmm. teacher in charge thing to being more of a consultant. And so I actually re, uh, redefined my job in about 2015 as consulting swordsman, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yep. Um, which, so you're basically, you're basically floating the idea of pastors being consultants rather than authorities. Yeah. How do you think that's going to go down? Oh, about as well as many of my great ideas go down. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, because honestly, the church is not famous for relinquishing authority or control. Yeah. And I mean, part of it is an element of who I am. So I live in the US now, but I was raised in Canada, grew up in the United okay. Church of Canada, far less hierarchical structure than many of the religious institutions in the US. Mm-hmm. And... um I was raised in a model that was far more supportive of this type of learning, had a much lower understanding of ministerial authority. Um, and it was one of the biggest culture things when I came to the States was going, okay, what's going on with the church here? This is not the church I know, or I've understood or how I, what this relationship between me and the minister and God was. So right. I come by a bit of my uh, stuff honestly, through culture and upbringing, but to really look at it in a way to say, how can we approach the educational component and think about the role of the teacher in a different way in this context? Okay, so what actual changes would you like to see happen? Oh, I'd love to see, and as I'm, as you mentioned at the beginning of the interview, I'm in the, uh, the Lutheran denomination now. I'm with the ELCA, which I fondly call the liberal Lutherans in the U.S. Um, And Luther's big reformation, right, was putting scripture in the hands of the people. I'd like us to continue to see that trust that came out of the Protestant Reformation taken to another level of saying, okay, so we've trusted them with the scripture. Now let's trust them to make the meaning with the scripture as well. Ah, so not just being allowed to read the Bible, being allowed to interpret it too. Yeah, and it is happening. That's a bold move. (laughs) (laughs) It is happening in some... We're moving in this direction simply um, in the same way that the printing press changed things with Luther. The internet is changing interpretations. Now we have access and forums for debate, but we still have problems with control, so just trying to navigate a graceful way through all of this and take that next step of trust. Okay. So um, when people have control and they they have power, it is very, very difficult to persuade them to give it up Mm -hmm. generally because a sense of power makes you feel safe. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you, you lose any of that, it's, I mean, like when I went through that process of of giving my students more and more and more control, more and more and more power, Mm -hmm. it was, scary because mm-hmm. they could have you know they could have had a, they could have been an accident mm-hmm. right somebody could have died um so i i think i can in, intuitively sympathize with the elements in the church but like no because if they <laughs> fuck it up they're going to go to hell and burn in hell forever that's a very bad outcome we have to make sure that doesn't happen and therefore we have to make absolutely certain they're doing everything exactly as they're supposed to do otherwise they're all fucked um what's your argument for letting go of that Well, that's the second cool thing that we have in both fandom and ideally in religious environments is community. So we're trying not, we're not trying to set you off as a free agent and go, okay, go figure this all out on your own. And whatever you come up with, the gospel of Frederick, great, you've got it. But rather we're having these conversations in community. We gather in fandom in conventions or clubs. We gather in churches and community for interpretation and understanding and Hopefully, that community nature helps mitigate that tendency to go off down some really deep her- heretical rabbit hole over here. And I imagine it played out the same way in your sword community as well, that you had yeah. this group that if somebody did start to go off the rails, it's like, uh, maybe let's bring that back in here. But I mean, that's the thing, like, 
culture, uh, so, sorry, safety in a historical martial arts club is primarily about the culture, mm-hmm. right? Is that's what keeps everyone safe. It's not the equipment, and it's not the style, and it's not the rules that you fence under. It is mm-hmm. the culture of having a really deeply ingrained expectation that you are required to look after each other. Right, you think the church would be well-being. able to manage that too, that we're required to look after each other and think about each other's well-being. And the church is not always the best at that, but it <laughs> should be one of our core convictions. Well, yeah, I mean, that, and that was pretty much as soon as it came out of my mouth, I was like, hang on, that sounds... Right? Familiar. But yes, but generally, generally, that's that doesn't seem to be how most churches seem to act. Okay, so what is your concern with heresy? My concern or the concern that others in authority might have. Well, I can guess what others in authority might have, so, <laughs> and they're not on the show. So what's, what is your concern? So I don't think I'm concerned about heresy as a, oh, no, you can't think that it might be heretical. But rather, for me, I think heresy would be taking these texts in a way that does harm to others. And there's been a lot of that in the history of the church. So that would be... And- and in the history of historical fencing, taking these right? texts and interpreting them in a way that does harm to others. Absolutely, yeah. And, yeah. and that's, I think, honestly, we agree on our definition of heresy, because that's yeah. pretty much, I, I'm, I'm fairly tolerant of other interpretations, but some of them are heretical. If they get you injured when you try doing it that way, that is yeah. definitely wrong. Yeah. So those bounds of safety again. Um, I joke with my parishioners that there is a whole lot of overlap between my martial arts practice and my pastoral practice. And they don't always believe me. They're like, oh, what pastor are you going to come and stab us with a sword some Sunday? But no. <laughs> well, you should. Just try. <laughs> you know, they tempt me sometimes. They tempt me. I bet. But these, these boundaries around safety, these boundaries around care for others, these concerns for learning and community, they're really, really parallel concerns between the two um, structures. Yeah, okay. So how has your martial arts experience, background and whatnot, how has that influenced your job as a pastor? Hmm. Well, my tongue-in-cheek answer is one of the biggest things you learn in martial arts is self-control, and that's a really, really good life skill to have as a pastor. (laughs) Okay. Um, Why so? So one of the – in my education and my training to become a pastor, one of the concepts we were taught is that in any situation, we are to be the non-anxious or at least the less anxious presence. So being able to be in a high-stress situation and still go, I'm okay, calm down, lizard brain, don't come out of your reactions, let's take that extra half second and think about it, or rely on these trained responses. So rather than elevating, escalating a situation, you're the one keeping it under control. You're the one moderating. Um, you're dealing with the same sort of adrenaline dump that you deal with when you're sparring. What sort of situation are we talking about? Oh, goodness. It can be everything from being in an annual meeting when somebody stands up and says, I think our church should leave the denomination because blah, blah, blah. It can be being in a hospital emergency room with a family who's got a loved one in the next room and they don't know if they're going to make it. Right. So anything that causes that same tension, anything that causes that same adrenaline spike, um, the body and the mind respond in very, very similar ways between the two. Okay. So you've actually found like having been kicked in the head in Taekwondo is a useful preparation for staying calm when you have to be the 
the pastor figure in a stressful situation. Yeah, I mean, the kinks okay. in the head and the pastoral life aren't us- they're usually emotional rather than physical, but sure. the brain doesn't distinguish between those. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I, I, I've not thought of it, but actually, I think the church would probably be a lot more popular if all the pastors were martial artists. I mean, I recommend it to all my colleagues. Seriously, you should look <laughs> at doing, even if it's something like Tai Chi, something that trains mm-hmm. you in that sort of balance. And Okay. Um, so you have like a lot of things going on, because clearly you're, you're actively working as a pastor, mm-hmm. and you just wrote a PhD, mm-hmm. and you have children. And mm-hmm. I presume you spend at least some time doing marriage stuff. Because, <laughs> yep. you know, if you want to stay married, you have to actually do stuff. You have to, have to work at it at least a little bit. Yeah. Um, and you're training in at least two different martial arts. So how do you have time to talk to me? Uh, good scheduling is my quick <laughs> tongue-in-cheek answer. Um, but, I mean, there's a lot of truth to that. Um, and it is continually a matter of looking at all the priorities and figuring, you know, what is it? What is it that needs my attention now? How much can I give to this? Um, There is a hierarchy in ranking because absolutely my kids come first, my marriage comes first, and that's before job, that's before school, that's before historical martial arts. But then also the companion to that is knowing that I am a better parent and I am a better spouse when I am doing the things that help feed my brain and make me happy, like doing a PhD for fun or stabbing my friends on the weekends and figuring out how to make all of that work together. It really, really helps that my spouse is also a sword fighter. So this is not only um, a hobby of mine, but it is a shared interest. So sword time can also be marriage time. Um, Tuesday night practice is Tuesday night date night for us. So we go, (laughs) we go, we stab our friends for two hours and we go out for ice cream after and it's great. That that is a really good way to do data. Yes, excellent. Yeah. Um, okay, because I have like similar priorities, like you know, wife and kids first, then job stuff actually comes relatively low on the list, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's tricky because like one of the hardest things is protecting the downtime, mm-hmm. right? Like for busy people, often the very first thing that goes is sleep. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty fanatical about not getting to bed too late and not getting up too early. Mm-hmm. Um, do you sleep well? When things are balanced and I'm taking care of myself, yes. But you're right that when things get to start to get out of balance, that's one of the first things that goes. So sleep is almost my uh, canary in the coal mine. When I start right. to realize I'm not sleeping well, that's the, oh, stop. You need to check out what you're balancing here. And there are times when my different priorities are inherently in conflict. So like so much of the historical martial arts, the SCA happens on weekends. And mm-hmm. um, I am always working Sunday. So oh, of course you are. Yeah. Right? So there's yeah. an inherent structural conflict there. Yeah. And one of the things I had to learn was that I could not do swords in a lot of the way that my friends do swords. Because right. weekends are their off times. They can go, they can go to an event all day Saturday, go out for dinner with friends and then be at the hotel room post revel afterwards in the lobby until all hours of the night, sleep in on Sunday and then drive home Sunday afternoon. 
we can't do yeah, that yeah. as a nature of my job. So um, sometimes it's difficult to fit in the community with having those limitations. Because if you only get to be there for the stabbing part and not for all of the social time, uh, you don't yeah, make you need the same the social connections. Time too. Yeah. yeah, you don't get to hear the um, once the masters have had one or two drinks and they're willing to wax philosophical about the latest thing they've discovered in um, Fabris. You miss on some of that, and unfortunately, with prioritizing family, with prioritizing job, there's a point at which you have to go. Okay, this is just part of the experience that I don't get to have all the time, and I have to sure. be okay with that. Yeah, I mean, I used to work weekends myself because you know teaching sourcemanship. People, it tends to be evenings and weekends, mm-hmm. um, and when I stopped teaching regularly, like night in, night out, you know, four or five days a week. It was amazing how much other stuff I could do with friends or you know, with the kids or whatever, because I wasn't working at the weekends and I wasn't working in the evenings. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a there's there's definitely a, a cost there. Actually, like one of the th- it wasn't why I started this show, but one of the one of the things that people have told me that they really enjoy about it is um, these episodes. They often feel like they're hanging out in the pub with mm-hmm. me and whoever I'm talking to. And they're getting some of that sort of social interaction and catch up stuff, mm-hmm. um, albeit passively. So they can't like interject with questions or what have you. Mm-hmm. But actually listeners quite often like email me questions based on something that's come up in a, in an episode. So, so there are maybe some asynchronous, non time specific mm-hmm. ways that, that, that you can kind of fill up that well. And I think the asynchronous options have really expanded. It's one of the, positive sides of the COVID pandemic is it's forced many of us to think about how we do swords differently, how we can communicate Mm. in new and different ways and give these spaces, which was a necessity during COVID, but it's had um, some really nice side effects for those of us who can't hang out at the pub on Saturday nights as much. Right. Um, So it existed before the pandemic, but I think the pandemic has accelerated the ways we think about it. And and um, do you do social media at all? I do on Facebook, but that's about it. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll cut this out if this is a no. Let me just make a little <laughs> time note. Okay, there we go. But I've recently started a social media platform for sword people. Uh, it's called swordpeople.com. And mm-hmm. you might, again, it's, it's, it's as synchronous as you want it to be. Mm-hmm. And again, it's, its purpose is to connect sword people, but not through a platform that is controlled by tech billionaires who are trying to sell advertising mm-hmm. um so i think i think you should come and join us <laughs> you know i've been listening to a few of your podcasts in preparation for this because mm-hmm. that's what i do to cope with anxiety i over prepare um okay and Sorry, were, you, were you anxious about coming on the show oh absolutely i mean you are a hero of the sword community you've had people like Kayatan on here who are big names and it's like I'm some nobody in the middle of Chicago who stabs people when I can fit it in between my kids and my marriage and my job. So well, I'm glad you had the had the um, the guts to come on because it would have been a shame if you said no. Well, again, like I said, it was my honor. So, um, sorry, you were saying you were listening to yeah. So I've heard your advertisements um, at the beginning of your more recent podcasts about it, and I've found myself in this internal conflict of, oh, wow, that sounds super cool, and, oh, wow, can I manage one more thing? Maybe after I <laughs> my dissertation. 
<laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Leave, leave it till after the dissertation, after yeah. you've, de- you've defended your dissertation. And yes. March 23rd, it's close. All right. <laughs> yes. Um, today is February 27th, I think. Yep. So, so. yes. All right. You, you have like just over three weeks. Good luck. Thank you. <laughs> um, okay. So I noticed on, because I do a little bit of research on my guests, obviously. I, at least I try to figure out, you know, what sort of things I should be asking them and you know, what mm-hmm. sort of experience they have and whatever. And on your Facebook profile, you also call yourself Anna Jokinet, which is a nice Finnish name. It is. And I have to ask, who is she and why is she Finnish? <laughs> so that is my SCA persona. Um, ah, okay. I am a bad Skadian in that um, the historical was the secondary part for me. So I came to the SCA because I like to shoot archery and I learned I like to stab people with swords. So um, Anna is... Um, a tribute to my own heritage. My mom's family is from Finland. Oh, really? Yes. Hence the first name, Jana. Um, yeah. They anglicized the spelling, which I've never forgiven them for. I wish they'd kept the double A in it like it should okay. be. Okay. My youngest daughter, her name is Katrina, K-A-T-R-I-I-N-A. And yeah. absolutely everybody screws up the double I and it drives <laughs> her nuts. <laughs> yep. Yeah, which is why they took out the extra A. But um, yeah. so my um, my Mumu's family were Yolkanens. And when I was looking at, okay, I need some historical name. It's like, fine, what can I find from Finland? Let's pay this tribute to my mom's family. Um, it's actually not an allowed name in the SCA because within the defined period, uh, women uh, weren't allowed to use that structure for the name because it's my, really? much like Anders' son. It's son of Anders, Johnson, son of John. Jokinen is that same sort of uh, male designation. No, is it? That's In Finnish? I I don't think so. That's what I've been told by a number of SCA heralds, and I'm tired of fighting the fight. Have you been told it by SCA heralds who speak Finnish? No, because there's a strange lack of them in central Illinois. Okay, because I think that's bullshit. I think because so there, there isn't there because Finnish doesn't have feminine forms. I and I know, but they, I can't find historical evidence of women having having the NEN uh, ending to the names within the SCA era. And because I can't find an appropriate tombstone, they say nope, we can't okay, do it. Okay, 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 right, okay. <laughs> what is the appropriate era? Tell, give me the dates. <laughs> uh, so it cuts off at uh, sixteen hundred. So, so it has to be pre sixteen hundred. Pre sixteen hundred. Okay. All right. Now the 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 primary issue with finding you this information is that Finnish wasn't written down as a language until relatively late. And if yep. I'm remembering rightly, it's fifteen hundreds. Okay. Yep. Um, but I I do I just thought of just the person who I'm going to send this query to, and I'm going. <laughs> He's head of special collections at the University of Helsinki Library. Ooh, so okay. He's he's seriously fucking qualified about all this sort of thing. <laughs> yes. Okay, and I will see if I can find you an example of a of a a woman. So woman using surname which ends N E N. Because Jokinen just means of the river. 
Yes, it does. Which, um, as I'm sitting here staring out my window, I'm looking at a river right there. I grew up in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, which is literally the rapids of St. Mary's, so right on the river. So I love the name, not just for the familial connection, but for the actual meaning of it, too. Okay. So, um, but the good thing is the SCA um, doesn't exactly prohibit you from using the name. I can't register it officially, but I can use it informally. So that's what I do. And the heralds can just cope. <laughs> well, all right. Okay. Watch this space because, because it's, it's making me very cross. Excellent. <laughs> All right. Okay. And I, I will. I will see what I can do. And I, I will do this all by <laughs> by email and whatnot. And and then ho- hopefully we can we can get this sorted out for you. All right. Brilliant. Okay. Now I do have a couple of questions that I ask all of my guests. And the first is, what is the best idea you haven't acted on yet? Oh goodness! In all of yeah. your copious free time, <laughs> as you lie there twiddling your thumbs, <laughs> eating bonbons and relaxing. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. I would love a way to figure out how to connect other fencers, uh, particularly fencers who are parents, to the same sort of connections that allowed me to develop my fencing career. Because something we haven't had a chance to talk about is how important the community or the village has been as I took on my uh, sword fighting Um that same college roommate I mentioned who got me into the SCA in the first place, mm-hmm. part of what she also did when I started fencing was saying, hey, your kid's about the same age as my kid. Do you want me to hang with your kid so you can go fence in that tournament? I'm part, ah. of, an S- yeah. I'm part of an SCA household. So when my kid was a little bit older and didn't need direct supervision, but also couldn't 100% be trusted entirely on his own because mischievous yeah. five-year-olds are a thing. Um, we would, at events, we have a day camp or a setup where the, our household or family gathers. And I could give him boundaries of, you know, stay over here in the household area. If I'm on the list and you need something, ask any one of the household and they can help you with emergency needs or safely grab me off the list. Um, and outside of the household, I have had amazing uh, people, primarily women, who have been there before, who have had mm-hmm. the chance to say, hey, don't worry, I've got them, you go fence. Or there was one day, we talked a little bit about brain space and how it's a challenge for me. Um, sometimes mm-hmm. switching between mum brain into stone cold murderer brain is a really <laughs> hard change to make. When you've yep. just been dealing with a leaky nappy and somebody's crying because they don't have their goldfish and you're supposed to go out and go murder somebody. I mean, the urge to murder at that point can sometimes be a little high. <laughs> and that, that's just as bad. That's actually worse than having it, having it being a bit too it, passive. Absolutely. Um, and I remember there was one tournament and this was the big rapier tournament in our area. It's the high pressure one, the up and comers. You're always looking to make your name here. And I'd been training for this um, because I was right at the edge in my fencing where it's like, okay, I want to come out and show people I know what I'm doing, that I've made real progress. So I was coming into this tournament with all these expectations. And my older kid was about 10. My younger kid was about two or three. So really rough age. And they both had to come apart as we got there. We had driven down that morning. They were a mess. I was trying to get them straight and trying to get my gear on, trying to go sign in at the list table. 
and it was too much. And one of the elders in our community, and I mean that in terms of experience, not age, but the woman who brought rapier fencing to our region saw me as I was running out to the car to get whoever had forgotten what. Yeah. And she said, are you okay? And I just started to cry. Yeah. And she gave me every, a gigantic- Every parent has been there. <laughs> yep. And she gave me a gigantic hug and she said just that, oh, I've been there. You're having one of those days. Let me give you a Mari hug and it'll be okay. And it was. She, that was enough that I could reset. I could grab whatever had been forgotten in the car. I got to the list on time and I went out and had one of my best performances ever. So that connection, that community, how do we see our fencers, our rapier fighters who are struggling with the same thing, who are doing their best to come and do that thing they love? How can we support them? on the sidelines. Because we're pretty good, not always, but we're pretty good at the teaching. We're pretty good for the people who can be there. But how do we notice the people on the sidelines who are struggling to get there in the first place? And what can we do as a community to bring them in? Okay. So what would you do? Do I have a magic wand or not? (laughs) Uh, Well, okay. My my next question, as you know, because I send everyone questions in advance, is somebody gives you a million dollars to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide. I'm guessing that you would want to put it so, so you can have as much money as you want um mm-hmm. that the, the spirit of the previous question is more like there's this thing you've always wanted to do but haven't got quite around got quite around to doing it yet mm-hmm. and the spirit of the second question is more castles in the sky yep but um you can interpret the questions however you like so i mean a combination of the two I think it would be amazing if we had unlimited funds and we could get through all the logistics and the safety concerns of what would it look like to have high quality, safe childcare available at sword fighting events. You are, you are not the first one of my guests to suggest childcare at sword events as a good use of the money. And I completely agree. Yeah. So figuring that out um, and just... There's so many logistics, particularly in this country. There's so many legalities around that. Um, yes. That I don't know how to do it without a shit ton of money. So yeah. that million dollars might cover it for a region. But if we could figure <laughs> yeah, out yeah, yeah. how to do that and do it well. And then I have to say the other thing I would love to do is buy a copy of Fear is the Mind Killer for everybody in the rapier community and make them read. Oh, yeah. So. Okay. The, the getting them the book is easy enough. Right. Making part, them read right. is hard. I've I've been banging Kaya's drum, you know, telling everyone to go read Fear is the Mind Killer since it came out. And, okay, I don't know if you spotted it, but the very first sentence in the book, do you know what it says? Not off the top of my head. Refresh me. This book would not exist without Guy Windsor. <laughs> because I sat Kaya down when we were, we were having dinner or something in a restaurant in, in Vancouver. And I was like, so Kaya, when are you going to write a book? Mm-hmm. Because he was telling me about various, you know, career interests, and you know, he was thinking about you know, starting Valkyrie, or maybe the start of Valkyrie, the start of Valkyrie, the start of it. But looking at the the process of creating a historical martial arts professional career, and I was like, why well, a book would be really helpful. Yeah, and I sort of mentored him through the first draft. You know, mm-hmm. okay, I'm you know, checking in every couple of months, saying, okay, so where is that chapter you said you were going to send me? That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes and and then his first fucking book produces a masterpiece that everyone has to right. read that is not yep. fair 
That is not fair. That should be like your 10th book. Mm-hmm. But there we go. But we talk about having village. We talk about having support. Things yeah. like Kaya's book are exactly what is needed. Because for me, his book came at a critical point where it's like, can I really manage all of this? Can, how do I deal with my own brain stuff? Do I just give up and let the brain weasels? I'm always going to freeze. Do I want to bother pushing through this? And reading that book at that time, being recommended by somebody who went, hey, I think you should read this. I think it could be really helpful. That's part of building the village of support for what fencers like me need too. So not just those on the ground supports, but what can we do on the side? So I can fit in my 20 minutes of reading before I fall asleep and still be able to look at these things that I love. So yeah, yeah. Kaya gets a huge shout out. um, And I just had another fencer ask me recently if they could borrow my copy because it's like, I don't have time to read it all. I need, but I heard you have a great edition that you annotated and put all the really important stuff out. So even that handing on of those personalized copies, so we can wow. refine the wisdom. I need to bug Kaya to produce an audiobook. Yes, version of it. that would be huge because that would be epic. Because yep. again, for people who are busy, audiobooks means you know when you're driving the kids to school mm-hmm. or whatever, you can be listening to an audiobook, or when you're doing laundry, or when you're I mean, for me, I can listen to, I don't actually listen to audiobooks myself. I listen to podcasts quite a lot, but I haven't quite cracked the audiobook seal myself. But <laughs> having it so that in that format, so that basically somebody's reading it to you yep. when you're busy doing something else. It's, yeah. It, and that helps with, diff- it helps with disability and differently abled fencers Absolutely. as well who can't sit down and do the reading to have it in this other format. Yeah. Or who are simply blind. Yes. Yep. <laughs> So uh, like I'm, I'm actually recording another audiobook um, next month, which, again, the problem with audiobooks in historical martial arts is they make absolutely no money, right? Yeah. They are, nobody buys them, yeah. right? But for those very few people who do, it can make all the difference. So, yeah, yeah I'm biting the bullet and booking a studio and recording a book um, next month, basically as a diversity play, because it's, it's frankly... It's not, it's not a good business move, <laughs> but it seems like the right thing to do. All right. So I'd like to use some of my fictional million dollars to help support that endeavor, both for your book and <laughs> for French Kaya's book. There yeah. we go. Well, okay. I, I, will, I will make a note here to bug Kaya to get the audio book out. And the thing is, with, with, with Kaya, like, if, if, I, if I make the point about you know, neurodivergence and disability and whatnot, that, that's a pretty heavy hammer to beat him over the head with. So yeah. who knows, we might actually get this done. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, now, that's actually, this. it strikes me that what you're trying to create is a way of systematically creating the support network that sometimes spontaneously emerges. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's never truly spontaneous. People put effort into it, but it's not, it's not organized from the top down. It just happens mm-hmm. by itself. Um, and you're trying to make it so that it's a more more reliable and accessible to people who perhaps, for instance, don't happen to have a wide network of friends or yeah. don't happen to have brilliant like socialising skills so they, they find it difficult mm-hmm. to guilt people into looking after their kids for them. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So how would you um, do it? Well, that's part of why I haven't done it yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. I think to some degree, one of the first steps is to almost do a PR campaign to make fencers aware that, you know, 
There are these people on the sidelines who could be wonderful members of our community with a little bit of support. I remember yep. um, there was a certain point I'd had I'd gotten like the first level award in the SCA for fencing, and I was hitting that point where I had to make a decision. You know, am I going to am I going to step up my game, continue my learning, and really move into fighting at the next level, or am I just going to stay here? And I was thinking about this. Um, and I was talking with one of my sword fighting friends and I said, you know, I'd love to do this. I want to do this. I love this and I want to improve. But I had just started my PhD program. We had just adopted our youngest. So we had an infant. Um, my daughter, our adopted daughter is black. So it meant I needed to change my place of employment because where I worked, the community was not safe for us to be a transracial family, so I had to oh. almost, yeah. Oh my god! So, do you want to tell us about that? Because that's, uh, <laughs> that's that's so, a pretty big that's a big bomb to drop in a conversation, and just walk, <laughs> and then just walk away from. Okay, so part of being a transracial family is that's just reality. It doesn't feel like a big bomb, but mm -hmm. I hear you. Um, so I was working in a small congregation out in the cornfields of Illinois, significantly south of this city. Um, and the congregation itself was wonderful and I loved working for them. And it was a one third time call, which was perfect because it gave me freedom to be mom and be spouse and be fencer and be PhD student. And then yeah. we threw our second child in the middle of this. And all of a sudden, um, a Confederate flag went up on the, one of the main intersections. Fuck. Yeah. And there was a time when I was there with my daughter and I had her in my little carrier and I was walking in the community between the church to the local store. And yeah. um, I got into a verbal confrontation that I was actually really concerned was going to turn physical. Um, and it was around okay. the fact that my daughter's race did not match mine. Wow. So it was at that point where I went to my bishop and said, I need to move. I cannot stay in this community. Okay, so you weren't getting the problem from your parishioners. It was just the no. people who happened to live in that town. Yeah. So it was no longer a safe place to be in that community. And unfortunately, that meant I couldn't do my job with these people who I yeah. loved very much. Um, That's brutal. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, my, my goddaughter was adopted from China by mm -hmm. Finnish friends of mine. So I was sort of, you know, on the periphery of a mixed-race family in Finland. But I know there were some issues, but... Mm -hmm. No one was waving Confederate flags. Yeah. And I mean, this is 45 minutes from downtown Chicago. So. Right. Wow. Um, so anyway, just adopted, just started PhD, yeah. um, just transitioned jobs, which meant moving from a one-third time call to a three-quarter time call, um, which has okay. now turned into a full-time call. Um, so okay, all just, of this. Just in terms of that, that's an unfamiliar term for... I oh. think most of the listeners. So a th one third time call is like one third of normal working hours is you're required to work. Yep. So right, okay. a one third time okay. job. Yep. Yeah. So you're now on a three quarter time job. Uh, no, I stepped up to a three quarter time job when I transitioned and now I'm at a full time mm -hmm. job. So. Right. Okay. Yeah. So all of this. So I'm saying to um, my friend, you know, I really want to step up my fencing to the next level. I'm at the point where I can feel I'm ready to learn the next stuff. But here's all the things going on. And his response was, and he meant this in the kindest way, was, oh, yeah, you've really sidelined yourself, haven't you? 
Oh, that's not a good response. And again, it was meant from honest, I don't see how anyone could manage to do all of this. Yeah. But as, I, as I've sat with it more, it's like, no, I haven't sidelined myself. I might need to train differently. I might need different types of support. It may take me longer, mm. but I am very much not on the sidelines. No. Um, so just raising, thinking about how we talk to, talk to people who are coming and saying, hey, I like swords. I want to try it but it's really hard for me to do weekend events or I don't know if I can afford a babysitter to do a weekly practice thinking about these different ways. So we don't say, Oh yeah, well you don't fit in the system, but here, let me connect you to places in the system where you do fit or how can we change the system to make it a little bit more accommodating mm. for these non-traditional fencers? Mm. Yeah. Like, my ambition for my sword people thing is it will provide some of that kind of mm -hmm. connectivity. Because basically, imagine if you have 200 people going to an event and they're all grown up. So maybe 50 of them are parents, maybe 100 of them are parents, maybe even 150 of them are parents. If they could all have the parenting conversation first, they could probably just self-organize some kind of rotor for who's taking the kids at that particular yep. time or that particular age group or whatever, you know, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't yeah. even require, doesn't, wouldn't necessarily require anything formal or organized or mm -hmm. official as part of the event. It could just be like self-organized between the parents. Yep. That by itself would go a long way. Yeah, it would. Huh. But again, figuring out how we do that for those people who aren't lucky enough to stumble into great social connections like I did. Right. Um, and I do, it was accidental. It is on no social merit of my own that this happened to fall <laughs> into place for me. Um, but to think about that, you know, how would, do we help structure this? How do we even turn it, like I said, look and see, hey, you look a little overwhelmed today. Can I help with this for just a minute so you can get your gear on? So, Yeah, I mean, I've, I've certainly held babies while parents fence in my classes. Mm-hmm. Because honestly, I, I can I teach a class while holding a baby. As long as the baby doesn't need like actual attention, yep, that's no problem. That's, e that's easy peasy. I just like stay a bit further back than <laughs> usual and call Holt and tell him what to do next. That's not a problem. Yeah. One of my favorite memories and the real transition for me in parenting was um, once I got cleared to do martial arts again, coming to my Taekwondo class with my six-week-old son. And he was wow. fussing a little bit. And... My black belt instructor said, don't worry about it. You stay there. I've got him. And he went and scooped uh, my son up and taught the rest of the class holding him, including doing a jump back kick while holding my infant. <laughs> it's like, now, that's trust. Okay. Mum brain. Mum brain. It's okay. You trust this person. But <laughs> yes. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. yeah. That's how it ought to be. Yeah. yeah. It would be nice okay. if we could evolve our community to include our whole families and our whole selves, not just the little portion of our lives that is our sword fighting selves. And that is the goal in training anyway. Mm -hmm. I think for, for a lot of people, a lot of the time, certainly the goal for me is like, how do you bring your entire self to this thing, which is otherwise super specialized? Yep. Because um, it can get, particularly if you do it a lot, it can get sort of fragmentation fragmentary it can be sort of like compartmentalization it's like okay this is fencing guy this is teaching guy this is parenting guy this is writing guy whatever like and 
I fence better when they're all present. Yep, absolutely. Hmm. You give me lots to think about, but the problem is me sitting here thinking quietly for 10 minutes does not make for a good podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to do my thinking after we're done. There we go. Um, so do you have any, so I'm assuming if you were given the million dollars, this is where you'd put it. I think so. Yes. Okay. Yeah. What would you actually spend it on? What, what would the money solve? <sighs> See, that's the part where I struggle. Um, I, I mean, once I sponsor your audiobooks and copies of that for everyone, um, <laughs> I think a it would be really interesting as a proof of concept to maybe do a season of at every event in, again, I'm an SCA, I fight in the Middle Kingdom. So at every event in the Mid-Realm, we have professional legal child care so that fighters can go mm. and do their things and just see how the community changed in that year. To say to people, hey, look, this is what we get if we value this thing. And ideally, you need a sociologist or anthropologist or something to actually do some proper scientific study on this. What is it like now? So what change is affected by these interventions? Yep. Ah, That would be fascinating. If I had the money, I'd give it to you. But I say that to almost all of my guests. And I'm running out of, well, I'm not running out of money. It's imaginary. But it's like there are just so many things that the... Ah, the money can go on. And mm-hmm. I, okay, you know the, the Swedish furniture store, IKEA? I do. I have one just down the street from me. Right. I don't know if it, I don't know if yours does, but certainly the one in Helsinki that um, we've got our kitchen. Small land. Right. Um, yeah. It had a crash. Mm-hmm. So you could go there and you could drop your kids off in the crash for, I think, up to two hours. Yep. Something like that. And it was free. Mm-hmm. And you can go around and do your furniture shopping without children whining about meatballs or what have you. And then you could go and have lunch in the restaurant yep. just with your spouse if you wanted to, or you could go and collect the kids and have it with them. But if you wanted a little bit of like a meal alone with your spouse while you have some more children, this is, this is gold, yep. right? And it's absolutely no wonder that IKEA made billions. Yeah. Because everybody went there because mm-hmm. they could get the childcare. So, yeah, I and th- I have I think- done exactly that. <laughs> oh, so they have it there, do they? They do. Yep. So it's called Small Land here. So you okay. go right in the front door. You can check them in for yeah. um, 90 minutes or two hours if you're an IKEA family member. Do your shopping. Go to the restaurant. I mean, my spouse and I have dropped our child off at Small Land and gone to have just a cup of coffee because <laughs> it was that small slice of sanity. Yep. So Yeah, okay. Now, I, I don't normally, I wouldn't normally say this, but so we're saying basically that historical sword fighting events should be more like Ikea. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> and another, another classic, take it out of context, and that makes no sense at all. <laughs> I just want, I want to see that quote on some of your social media profiles with no additional context, just to see where people go with it. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Yara. It's been lovely meeting you. And you. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Yana. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find transcriptions, photos, videos, and links for this episode. While you are there, you can sign up for my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my Sword Persons Care Package. This includes four ebooks and access to several of my online courses. And remember to go to swordpeople.com to join the only troll-free online community for sword people. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Dr. Antti Iyas, 
whose recent doctoral dissertation is a scholarly examination of Royal Army's Manuscript 133, which includes a complete transcription and translation. And we go into 133 in some depth and detail, as you can imagine, but he has also done a lot of work on the oldest martial arts sources that we have, which are these scraps of Greek papyri, um, so-called Greek papyri of pragmatic literature. And we go into some depth and detail on that too. So ancient Greek wrestling. And yes, the transcription was a nightmare because quite a lot of the words were in Greek. And of course, not just ancient Greek wrestling, but also ancient Greek sex. So you definitely don't want to miss that. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, if you have an extra minute, please do leave a review. Also, of course, as always, share this with your friends as far and as wide as you possibly may. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week.